Hey everybody, this is Keith Loy. I'm the founding senior pastor of Celebrate Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and this is our podcast. I just want to say thank you for joining us, and it is my prayer that this week's message will truly encourage you. Enjoy. I believe in light of Easter, there are two fundamental foundational truths that we know but I'm not sure that we know. In fact, I want you to repeat after me, the scene of the crime is in my mind. Say it again, the scene of the crime is in my mind. This was written a long time ago, you've probably seen it, it's up on the screen, but here's what it says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap your life. See, I don't think we understand that our destiny, our future, any and every effectiveness is tied directly to our thoughts. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. The power of what we believe, and so I'll say it again, there's two fundamental truths I think we know, but we really don't know. It has a lot to do with why we live or act or even love the way we do. Listen to this carefully. We will never rise to the level of a moment. we will always rise to the level of our mind. Let me say that again. We never rise to the level of a moment. When a challenge comes, when an adversity, if you will, shows its face, we don't rise to the level of that. We will always rise to what we believe who God is in that moment. The scene of the crime is in our mind. You see, we'll either live according to the lies we've chose to believe or we will choose to live by what God says and what he's declared to be true. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's not my or your opinion of that, it's what he stated and what we believe that to be true. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to Luke 7. It's a story that doesn't often get attention, maybe on Easter, when we think about what Easter is. We tend, if you will, to go to the grave, to the risen Savior. We might even speak of some things that Paul had written and Peter might have written about those events. But I think this is a graphic picture illustrating what Easter was really all about. And it gives us the two fundamental truths that I think we know, but I'm not sure that we know. So if you have your Bibles, Luke 7, I'm going to begin in the 36th verse. Here's what it says. One day, one of the Pharisees 
asked Jesus to have dinner with him. Now, let me help you with what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee would be basically sort of who I am, who Reed is here in the church. Someone that, if you will, teaches the congregation. Back then, those who held the sacred word, the truth, the first five books of Moses, if you will, and they would teach it to the people. They were the religious ones, if you will, the ones that oversaw the temple and did all the teachings therein. It's one of those guys who asked Jesus to come and have dinner. Verse 37, when a certain immoral woman heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Now we're gonna come back to that jar in just a little bit. But I wanna note that this is specific to the story that she is a certain immoral woman. Almost testifying to the fact that the Pharisee knew her. She wasn't uncommon. She wasn't just someone pulled off the street. It was very clear who she was, and she was immoral. She was immoral. Verse 38. Then she knelt beside Jesus at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on Jesus' feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing Jesus' feet, putting perfume on them. I told you we're going to come back to that perfume in a little bit. But I want to give you some historical perspective here because you need to know this back in the time when these events are unfolding. Back in Jesus' day, women in general would never have been allowed to go into a Pharisee's house without her husband. The only way she'd be permitted to even be in there is if her husband's with her. A woman in general would have never been allowed to speak to such a person, to Jesus being a rabbi or this Pharisee, unless she had the consent of her husband. And a woman in general would have never worn her hair down in public. It would have always been up and pretty much almost all the time her head would have been covered. And this woman breaks all three of these. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, notice he's not speaking out loud. He says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Back in that day, the religious people always put people into two camps. The sinful or them. Because that's how the Pharisees viewed themselves. They had arrived. Or at least this, not that they were perfect, they just weren't that. Hold that for a moment because I want to remind you, he has a thought that he doesn't share. And I only say this because I don't want you to miss this is that I always think in our world today, there's a lot of us in this room that care more about what people don't know than what he does know. Did y'all catch that? Like we've all had thoughts, right? And yet the Bible says none are hidden. So every thought that you had that wouldn't be honorable, at least if you voiced them, maybe some of you did, 
But if you would have voiced them, you would stop and go, oh, I don't want anybody to know I'm thinking that. Well, you just need to know this. Every thought you had this week, God knows. What I also want to help you understand, too, is when you think you're alone in private and you think nobody knows, I'm always sad that Christians don't seem to get this. You're never alone. God is in the house and so is the devil. And what the devil's learning is this. While you're worrying about image and you think you're doing something in private, the devil's learning who you really are. And he will bide his time because he's all about death and destruction. So a Pharisee has a thought. Look what happens. Then Jesus answered his thoughts because he knows everything, right? Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, he replied. Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. He's talking about a denarii. A denarii, one equals one day's full wage of pay, okay? So one owes 50 days, if you will. The other owes 500. So one roughly over a month and a half, the other over a year and a half. But neither of them could repay the man. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he says to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came first in, she had not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you her sins, don't miss this, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. Now remember, Jesus knows everything. He just publicly displayed while she's sitting there. She has sinned a lot. I know that. But she's forgiven. But a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, if you have your notes, take them out. I want to give you those two fundamental truths that we know, but I'm not sure that we know because I have to, if you will, state this in advance. How can you and I see what God sees when he sees me? Or maybe another way to say it is, what do we really believe of what God believes when he sees me? And so here's the first one. I want you to write it in. Jesus really loves sinners. Say that with me. Jesus really loves sinners. And then afterwards, I want you to write these two letters, M-E. See, I know that we know this, right? We know that Jesus loves sinners. 
but do we really get what that means? Say, I want you to own it right now. I want you to simply say, I am a sinner. Say it. Now look at someone and say, you're a sinner. <clears throat> Here's what I fear. You found a whole lot more fun in telling them that they're a sinner than owning yourself. So now turn to them and tell them what you really want to tell them. Like, you're a sinner and not, if you will, as good as I. Like, you're worse than I. See, see let me help you with this. Because some of you might be going, ah, I wasn't thinking that. Let me play this out a little bit. I'm not asking you to shout out a name, but I want you to think in your mind right now, in our world, even in the far past, who would you consider the greatest notorious criminal? Just want you to think about that right now. Don't say it out loud, just think about it. Don't even answer this, but I'm gonna ask another question. Do you think you're better than them? Most of us would say, well, yeah, I didn't do all that. And therein lies your problem. You don't get that Jesus really loves sinners. Because you go, I'm not them. And the fact of the matter is, you are. See, before you run to the door, you might stop and go, well, I'm not that bad. Everybody look up here. Well, you're not that good. See, we don't, we don't want to go there, do we? See, I know this to be true because it's, it's why you and I have a hard time to forgive when someone hurts us. Because our tendency is we don't really get this. We tend to look here and compare this. It's why when someone wounds us, it's so much easier to hold on. And why we have conversations about other people when they're not in the room. See, we know this, but we don't really know this. Because it's hard to really believe something until you actually understand who you are and who he is. You and I are sinners. And there ain't nothing you can compare yourself to the day you die with anyone else. But there'll be nothing in you that will be good enough to get you there. And until you get that, it's going to be really hard for you to love. It's going to be really hard for you to live abundantly. Someone had a conversation with me and said, how, how, Pastor, how do you work through that? Like if someone actually murdered your wife, how do you forgive? And here's what I said. I can't. But when I get this, he does through me. And I started crying with him. Because I said, I can't even get there. I can't even get past this. Why does God love me? Who am I? See, the moment that we look elsewhere, if we're not careful, you know what we're saying? What they did was so wrong, but he, but I'm going to get it. I'm going to get forgiveness. I'm going to get grace because I deserve it. I can't look here because I can't, I can't get beyond here. I just got to stay at the cross with Jesus. 
Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Out of the mouth of babes, right? Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Folks, that's good news, isn't it? Do we have any golfers in the house? How many are golfers? Okay, every time I do this, you're not getting it. So how many think you're a golfer, okay? <laughs> hold your hand up. That, that helps. Just keep your hand up high. Please hold it high. Don't put it down because I want to show something. Put your hand up if you're a golfer. Come on, you've, or you've golfed. Let's just start there, okay? You've seen it, okay? All right? Okay, keep your hand up if you've gotten a hole in one. Whoa, that one falls off, okay? You've gotten two holes in one. Just one, yeah. And you've gotten two holes in one? You know lying's a sin in the church. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, but that's, that'd be awesome. But here's the deal is, that's kind of the goal, isn't it? Called aiming for perfection. And yet in interesting, we long to do it, a few have. And yet we spend all of our time trying to achieve something we cannot but we do it occasionally and then we feel good about ourselves. Well, let me tell you this, what you and I do occasionally, he does all the time. See, one of my favorite stories is about Moses and Jesus. They went out golfing. Maybe you've heard this story. So Moses is up on the tee. It's a par three, about 1,200 yards. I mean, it's, it's them, you know, come with me. He pulls out a pitching wedge, okay? And he hits the ball and, and it's a beautiful straight head into the green and there's this pond in front. He's like, oh, it's not going to clear the pond. He throws his club in the air and the water parts. And the ball goes right up through onto the green. And Jesus is like, great shot, Mo. You know? And Jesus gets up there and he uses a sand wedge. He's like, watch this. Hits the same exact shot. And it too lands right in front of the water. He waves his club and the, water, the ball walks across the water and goes right up on the green. And Moses like, good shot, G. You know? They're getting ready to walk off the tee box and this dude walks up. Says, you mind if I just play through? They kind of roll their eyes and like, oh, great, yeah, go ahead. You know? This dude hits the ball and it is a slice. I mean, it just whacks off to the right, hitting trees, branches busting, hits the ground, a squirrel comes out of the tree, grabs the ball, starts running across the fairway, an eagle swoops down, grabs the squirrel, starts flying away with the squirrel and the ball, right above the green, the ball coughs out of the mouth of the squirrel, lands on the green, hits it twice, and goes in the cup. And Jesus is like, oh, nice shot, Dad. <laughs> Now, they can do that, right? We don't. See, the Bible says that the word sin means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. In Romans 3, we read, all have missed the mark. But it's why I love Easter when you get Easter. Because Jesus loves busted up, broken up, beat up people. Anybody here qualify? Yeah. Watch this. He doesn't love a better version of you. 
He doesn't love a fixed up version of you. Jesus loves you, the you you are right now. The addicted, messed up, flipped out, never will be perfect enough, you. I love Easter. You see, I'll say it again. This woman understood that. Something in her spirit was so broken that she knew the answer was Jesus. And she didn't care what the rules of engagement said. What tradition had tried to spell out. She went into a house she was not invited. She went to the master and got at his feet, of which she had no permission. And she wept on his feet, the dirtiest part of his body. And do you know why? In that day, that would have been the dirtiest part. But they were cleaner than her. She understood that. And they're the feet of Jesus. And her hair's let down. See, I long for a church that cares more about that than they do about anything else. That they want to be intimate with Jesus and they don't care about the image of what everybody else thinks, right? See, I was with Reed this, this past week and one of the things I share with Reed, I want you to listen to this. I just had to ask this question. I said, Reed, I just wonder how many hookers will be in heaven and how many sophisticated uprights won't. I wonder how many drunks will be in heaven and how many professionals won't. I wonder how many criminals will be in heaven and how many church people won't. This woman understood who Jesus was and really didn't care about what the culture thought. She wanted to be with, with Christ and what he said of who she is. Romans 5 says it, when we are utterly helpless. <laughs> How many here are helpless? It should be all your hands, okay? God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still what? Sinners. Sinners. Do you remember back in the story when the Pharisees who invited Jesus, when he saw the events unfold, he says to himself, here's my thought. What have you been saying to yourself? What are those thoughts that you think only you know? Are they thoughts of truth? Of what Jesus says? Are they thoughts and lies of what the enemy keeps telling you? Jesus really loves you. He loves me. Amen. Turn to someone and tell them that. Jesus loves me. Here's number two. Here's number two. Jesus really forgives sin. Say that with me. Jesus really forgives sin. And then I want you to write beside that, my sin. Own it. Jesus loves sinners of which I am. And he forgives sin no matter how much my sin. Remember the story, verse 40, Jesus replied, Simon, I have something to say. A creditor had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they couldn't pay it, he graciously, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them would love him more? And Simon answered, suppose the one who forgave more. Let me tell you this. The whole point of the story is 
It isn't about the amount, the fact that he forgives. We all have more, don't we? But he forgives. He forgives. I want you to write this down. Shame, guilt, twin brothers of destruction. Shame, guilt, twin brothers of destruction. Do you know what shame is? Shame is what tells you, you are what you've done. Shame is those words, I'm not good enough. I get that God forgives, he just couldn't forgive me. You know how many times I've heard those words over the years? People walk up and say, Pastor, you have no idea what I've done. You know what I always say to them? Please, please hear this. I don't care what you've done. I care what he had done. That's the hope. It's not where you are. It's who he is. It's not where you've been. It's the fact that the battle was won. He really forgives. Shame says, well, this is who I am. And you know what guilt says? And I deserve to be punished. That's why they're twin brothers of destruction. I don't know if you guys know this, but a few years back, Jesus actually applied to work on our staff. <laughs> I, have, I actually have his bio he gave me. And, oh, we hired him, trust me. And uh, I, I want to read you his bio. He gave it to me. I kept it. Here's his bio. This is what he gave me. I am the eternal son of God. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the great I am. I am the alpha. I am the omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the written word. I am the spoken word. I am the living word. I am the bread of life. I am the one whom the angels sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and is to come, which means this, my sin, your sin, you guys ready for this, is no match to the blood of Jesus. My sin, your sin is no match. Do you really think, do you really think that anything you have done is greater than the cross? He forgives sin, people. You don't have to live with the shame of what you've done. You don't have to live with the guilt of thinking something you deserve. Jesus is the shame remover. He is the guilt eraser. He truly is oxyclean. You hear me in that? <laughs> Though her sins were many, that's what he says. Though your sins are many, they're forgiven. Ephesians 1, we can praise God for the glorious grace he poured out on us, on us. He purchased our freedom. He did it with the blood of his son, Jesus, and forgave what? All our sin. Did you know that you and I will never outperform our wounds? Do you know what I mean by that? Sometimes I think we try to work so hard for Jesus we're thinking somehow if I can just do a little bit better, these will sort of be taken care of. He'll sort of just kind of brush them aside. Folks, you and I will never outperform our wounds. We can try to cover them up. You ready for this? But you and I can never eliminate them. But he can. And he did. That's why I say the scene of the crime is in my mind. It's what I really believe. Do I really believe that he loves sinners like me? Do I really believe he forgave all my sin? 
that I've committed. Remember the alabaster jar? Alabaster was a city in Egypt. It's where the perfume was made. Here's what you need to know about the alabaster jar. I can tell you where it came from. Because if you know history and about Jewish women, as they were growing up to being a young woman, their daddy would have given them something of high value. What a daddy would have given is knowing that one day his little girl would be a wife. She needs something of a dowry, something that's worthy to give to her future husband. I want you to see the picture here. This woman was immoral. What she did was so wrong. And around her neck is this vial. It's around her neck. And she would break it. And she would take the most priceless thing that she has and she would break it over the feet of her future husband. Something in her understood brokenness and being abused and being beat up and I've made so many bad choices. But Jesus loves me, this I know. And Jesus will forgive me when no one else could. And she'd take everything she had and she would break it over the feet of Jesus. Now hold that picture because I want to read to you something. It's a story. It's very personal to me. It's about a little girl who grew up in the cherry orchards. I know them well, above Traverse City, Michigan. Some of you know that I was born in Michigan in 1965. I was there five years. The only place that I remember and recall in my childhood was in a little town called Elk Rapids, just north of Traverse City. I know this area. I can still see the, the visuals of the city. Her parents were a bit old-fashioned. They tended to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listened to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times. She didn't like it. I hate you, she would scream at her father when he would knock on her door of her bedroom after every argument. It was one night that she acted on something she had rehearsed over and over before. She ran away. She had visited Detroit only once before, ironically, on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because the newspapers in Traverse City reported of the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concluded it would be the last place they would look for her. California, maybe Florida, not in the same state, not in Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. 
She was right all along, she decides. My parents were keeping me from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, even into a full year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, and he teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay premium dollar for her. She lives in a penthouse. She orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about home, but their lives now seem so boring she can hardly believe she even grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headlines, have you seen this child? But by now, see, she has blonde hair and with all the makeup and body piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first signs of illness appear and it amazes her how fast her boss turns on her these days, we can't mess around, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much. And all the money now goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside a big department store, sleeping it's the wrong thing to do. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never let down her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty. Her stomach is hungry. God, why did I leave, she says to herself. The pain stabs her heart. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash more than anything else, I just want to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with an answering machine. The third time she leaves a message, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering, can I come home? I'm catching a bus up your way and I'll get there about midnight. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay in the bus until it gets to Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town? What if they missed the message? Maybe she should have waited another day until she could have talked to them and heard a voice. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's been preparing. Dad, I'm so sorry. I know I'm wrong. Can you forgive me? She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with its lights on since Bay City and she's forgotten how dark it gets at night out there. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh God, she says to herself, 
when the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hiss. The driver announces in a cracky voice over its speakers, 15 minutes, it's all we have at this stop, 15 minutes. 15 minutes, she says to herself, to decide my life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice. But they're probably not there. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to suspect. And not one of the thousands of scenes that she played out in her mind prepare for what she encounters. For you see there, in the concrete walls, plastic chairs, a bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters, great aunts, uncles, cousins, grandmother, and even a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers taped across the entire wall of the terminal. On the back behind them is a sign that reads, Welcome home. Out of the crowd breaks that. Frozen she is. Tears like hot mercury flowing down her cheeks. She begins her speech, Dad, I'm so, but he interrupts. Hush, my child. We got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for your party. We have a banquet, a banquet waiting for you at home. See, I long for a church that just wants to be home. I long for a church that doesn't try to keep one foot in the door of the world and one trying to be in the word, but a total abandonment of people who really understand Easter that I'm a sinner. It doesn't matter what people think. I don't want to be image protective. I want to be intimate with the Holy One like this woman because I'm no better than her. I definitely don't want to be a church of Pharisees who sit and look across rooms, tables, and go, do you know what they did? I want to be like this woman who understands Jesus loves me. And he forgives everything I've done. Because when we understand that, I believe with all my heart, that little girl's life changed. And when this gal comes home in Traverse City, a true story, and meets a father that says, I don't care where you've been. It's where you are right now. See, that's what matters. So I'm going to ask you if you'd bow your heads. Just bow your heads for a moment. I want to ask you a question. What is your alabaster jar? I'm talking about that thing that you keep holding on to that keeps you from letting loose for God. That thing that you think that I can't let go of it because the fear of letting go is greater than the future that you could possess. 
It's very real. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's choices of how you're choosing to live. Could be a possession. Could be forgiveness that you need to give to somebody. But it's so much easier to hold on because you're so afraid that what if, what if God isn't real? What if he can't forgive me? What if he won't? And he's not a God of what if. He's a God of promise. He said, you come. I will. And whatever you let go of is so little. It seems so big right now, but it's so little compared to what he will give you. What is it? Is it past sins? You just think there's no way. I don't say this to put you on defense. I'm just telling you that's wrong thinking. There's nothing too big that the cross didn't take care of. And if the grave couldn't hold him back, ain't nothing you've done is going to hold him back. He loves you. And he wants to forgive you. So I'm going to ask ask if you just pray quietly in your heart right now. Just say, Father, I don't really get all of it. What's crystal clear to me, I want that love. It's hard for me to even imagine. But I want that love. That you just love me right now the way I am. Nothing I've got to do except receive that love. And God, to think that you fully, completely forgive me. God, thank you. Thank you for Easter. I just don't want to know it. I want to know it and to live it and to give it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter. I love you. I hope you know that. Well, thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. And if you like what you're hearing, consider rating it and even sharing it with your friends. It helps so much. You know, you can click the share button, take a screenshot and share it on your social stories and tag us at Celebrate Church. For more content from Celebrate and to connect with us, go to celebrate.church. We love you and we believe in you. God bless. God bless.